Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Damien Chazelle's new biographical drama, First Man. The film reteams Mr. Chazelle with his La La Land co-star Ryan Gosling to tell the riveting stories of NASA's mission to land the first human being on the moon and of Neil Armstrong, the astronaut chosen to make the one small step for man and giant leap for mankind on July 20th, 1969. In addition to First Man, Mr. Chazelle's credits include the feature films Whiplash and Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. He won both the Academy Award and the 2016 DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film for La La Land. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Chazelle spoke with director Darren Aronofsky about filming First Man. During their conversation, Mr. Chazelle discusses the need to take the audience to a time before man walked on the moon the influence archival footage had on the style of the film, and why the biggest challenge besides the technical aspects was realizing Neil Armstrong as a character. Damien Chazelle, everybody. Thank you. Congratulations. Can't wait for your sophomore slump. It doesn't seem to be going to happen to you. <laughs> Sorry, not to wish you any bad, but it made a tremendous job. Um, I get. I, let's start at the beginning. You know, you basically, you know, do La La Land, and the world is your oyster. You could do anything you want, pretty much. Why do you take on something that was probably pretty hard to get made? Uh, well, uh, I had started to. Uh I guess the easy answer is I'd started to work on this, uh, I'd say, I guess right before I started shooting La La Land. Um, it was during that sort of what felt like the interminable uh, time of trying to get La La Land made, um, uh, where um, these producers, uh, uh, Wick Godfrey and, and Marty Bowen, gave me this book uh, by Jim Hansen, uh, this biography of Neil Armstrong. Um, and... Uh, Asked if I was interested, and I, you know, uh, I was. That was all for um, Whiplash. That and did. yeah, it was, it was, uh, yeah, so it, it would have been kind of after, shortly after Sundance. And uh, my main focus at the time was still just trying to get La La Land off the ground. So I think I had, I always had sort of one mind, you know, one mind, uh, uh, one mind on La La Land and one mind on whatever was in front of me. So then, you know, I read this book, I was interested in it. Um, I didn't really feel like I had the wherewithal to write it myself uh, or to sort of dive completely into it um, uh, at that moment. But the things I was sure about were, you know, sort of roughly how I wanted it to feel visually and that I wanted uh, to try to have Ryan uh, Gosling play uh, play Neil. It just seemed to me... Um, like just the, before the, Ryan is on La La Land? And exactly. So that's actually how I met Ryan was, <laughs> was, uh, was sort of I got a meeting with him to pitch him this. Um, and, uh, and he seemed interested, but then very quickly... 
he, I guess he had heard that I had a musical script and very quickly the conversation went there and uh, started being about Gene Kelly and Busby Berkeley. And, and, uh, and that was probably the last, it was basically the last time we spoke about Neil Armstrong for the next, you know, year and a half or so. Um, and that was making La La Land. But then basically as soon as La La Land was done, I was hoping he'd still, you know, he wouldn't have been completely uh, uh, sick of me yet. <laughs> and, uh, and so I made sure to time it so that I had, by that point, finally had a script that Josh Singer, uh, the screenwriter, had, 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 you know, had time to craft. And we kind of handed it to Ryan, uh, hoping he'd still have it in him. And, uh, and then we were off to the races. So basically the short answer to the question is I didn't have to actually deal with that sort of moment of, oh, shoot, what do I do next? It was kind of, you know, if Ryan was going to still be on board with this thing, that's what I was going to go and do. So before the whole award circuit stuff, you started to set this up and get this emotion. It, it was, I guess, during that whole, I, I, I think Ryan literally read it, uh, read the script on a plane from one festival to the other. So it was kind of, the, the La La Land was in the can, um, but we were, I was seeing a lot of Ryan, obviously, doing that whole kind of, uh, it's, a, you know, also an interminable sort of world that just seems, you know, you kind of are on a, a treadmill for a while. And, and uh, uh, so it felt like uh, having something concrete to, to talk with him about and to be working on was uh, healthy. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Um, so hard to, it's, it's an interesting film. The big challenge is you don't have really a traditional antagonist, you know, so how... How did you create suspense? Um, you know, it's, it, everyone knows that Neil Armstrong walks on the moon, yet you have to create all these sequences of near-death experiences. Um, did you perceive as something as being the antagonist in the film? Did you, and how, how did you sort of craft suspense when the audience sort of knows what's going to happen? How did you think about those challenges? Um, I mean, yeah, in a way, I think, uh, <clears throat> I guess that was sort of, in some ways right at the core when I first started doing just the bare minimum of research, just the very beginnings of kind of, uh, again, reading Jim Hansen's book and starting to uh, kind of peel back the layers. Um, and I think the first thing that struck me that sort of felt like could be the, you know, uh, kind of spine of the movie was uh, realizing that I didn't realize how kind of close to failure this whole thing came, how unlikely, how audacious, how dangerous the entire program and, and mission as a whole comprising various sort of submissions was. Um, and so it felt to me like uh, you could actually maybe use, use what the audience knows, use these sort of uh, uh, big kind of goalposts like the actual landing on the moon. Um, as a way of uh, as a way of talking about things that the audience didn't know, and then hopefully maybe inspire questions about you know um, uh, what the what the you know what one as an individual or as a nation or as a world is willing to sacrifice in the name of some goal, whatever that goal is. Um, so uh, so it felt like it, it, it yeah, but it did feel like the challenge at the outset was going to be how can we kind of make people forget that the moon landing happened and the sort of you know suspension of disbelief. Um, so we talked a lot about you know um, let's just focus on you know this finite amount of time, these you know uh, seven eight years immediately leading up to the moon landing, um, and try to put the audience in the mindset uh, of a time when people hadn't yet walked in the moon, when it still was this sort of, um, on paper crazy notion. Uh, and, uh, and so it would basically be a procedural. It'd basically be, uh, kind of watching, uh, a, a team of people 
step-by-step uh, -step turn uh, uh, a dream into reality, turn something very kind of fantastical. Um, you know, you see like the early cartoons that NASA would kind of use as informational videos, and, and it sort of was a reminder to me of how pre-1969, really, uh, every image we had of people walking on the moon was inherently fantastical. It was Tintin. It was, you know, it was uh, Melies. It was uh, Jules Verne. It was just, it was, it was a uh, real total fantasy in a way. And so in this, this is a weird period of time where just in the span of a few years, people kind of, for whatever reason, decided to turn that fantasy into reality. And it cost a lot, cost lives. It cost obviously a lot of money, a lot of resources. Um, and it felt like that was that sort of cost and that sort of the, the difficulty of turning something into reality was that that would be enough of a yeah enough of a spine enough of a backbone to 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 basically set the movie again. So you believe the moon landing really happened? <laughs> it wasn't Kubrick. <laughs> I'm just joking. I uh, <laughs> I know what was interesting though is I always wondered where the camera of the actual walking came from. So it was a great moment to see <laughs> yes. see the footage and then to pull back and show. So the camera was gripped onto. For the whole ride, they had a camera riding what, outside there. Well, what the government tells us is that, <laughs> is that the camera was on. Yeah. Um, uh, um, it was actually kind of, I mean, um, yeah, little, little things like that were sort of fascinating. Of, of I remember we were, uh, we didn't really, I don't think we really wound up showing it in the movie, but another thing that, that Moon hoax uh I've gotten to become very familiar with the Moon Hoax yeah. community. Um, the, uh, although, not, did you see the Mythbusters where they busted it? It's a really, I don't know, I'm a big Mythbusters fan. I love that they show, busted, but I haven't seen the they, one where they, they actually, actually do that. It. I mean, they proved that it actually happened, or they busted the they myth, do, you know, whatever. whatever. I, I did see one video which I found very persuasive. Ironically, before making this movie, I find it even more persuasive after the fact, where, where they sort of argued very persuasively that it would be uh, essentially, given where technology was in 1969, it would actually have been way harder for them to do a full kind of live stream, so to speak, live aired fake of the moon landing the way they did uh, than it was to actually send people physically to the moon. <laughs> and having to try to reproduce just like two minutes of it uh, in 2017 um, and how go. kind of how hard that was, it's sort of, yeah, I think I was, I, it was sort of the, the brutal realization of... I think they actually did do this. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about the visual style, which is it's a fascinating approach to go so claustrophobic and, so, and to really, I mean, I just love the kind of spare use of wide shots and to, for tremendously dramatic reasons. I, the, the approach makes total sense to me, but tell, why don't you talk about why you went that direction? Uh, well, I think... Um, uh, I guess where where it probably started was uh, 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 just a feeling I got from the actual archival footage. Uh, when I took the time to actually just start watching, um, you know, and a lot of it's in great documentaries, and a lot of it you can just sort of find almost unedited um, online. Just archival footage, especially taken by the astronauts themselves, um, it, that in a way wound up dictating almost everything. It dictated... Um, you know, using 16 for a lot of the stuff. It dictated the kind of handheld documentary style approach. It also, I guess, kind of dictated what I wanted space to feel like. Um, I guess that was the other thing. It feels like there's been so many movies about space, so many great movies about space travel. So you want to try to find something that can be your own way in. And it felt like if we could cut against maybe the high-tech, sleek sort of image of, of space travel as always being sort of inherently futuristic, if we could make it seem 
almost even more period, like really lean into the analogness of it, um, both in terms of the crafts you're seeing, emphasize those aspects of the crafts, but also how it's, it was shot. Um, it just felt like that might be all kind of of a piece of trying to remind audiences um, uh, how threadbare uh, like a lot of this enterprise was. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, you and I went to a similar, uh, through a similar film program uh, 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 growing up. And, and uh, so I think I had also just this itch in me to return a little bit to how I made movie, learned to make movies as a student, which was uh, basically 16 millimeter camera on the shoulder, verite style uh, documentaries or documentary like uh, movies. And, um, and so, yeah, it just kind of, uh, I think once I sort of felt like that was, once I sort of adopted that as a general parameter, then, um, then we really decided to lean into it all the way and just um, uh, uh, kind of um, try to shoot the whole thing as though, as though we were sort of a verite documentary crews, though the Maisels or some, you know, people like that were kind of sneaking into the Armstrong's house and smuggling cameras into the capsules and just sort of seeing what those cameras would see, what was physically possible for those cameras to see and not do too many, you know, God's eye view um, sort of imagery. And it's shot on 16? Uh, so all the, spa all the space, uh, all the capsules are 16 and then um, uh, the whole beginning and everything in California before they moved to Houston is 16 and then it's sort of off and on. There's, I mean, basically... Off and on with what? Uh, with 35 two perf. So it was kind of, it was, it was basically, uh, uh, um, we kind of decided we wanted the whole movie to have a 16 feel. There were certain instances where when we got to things like the giant Saturn rocket and things like that, where, where we felt the 16 wasn't doing justice to the, to the scale of things. So we wound up kind of there, we go to 35 two perf the, and the, try to mix the, the two. The dark cloud with the rocket emerging. That close up is that the shot you're talking about? Oh no! I, well, that's what uh, is that? Talk about that shot. That, that kind of crazy framing and that, chasing after it through the. Well, plot. that kind of that that was something that actually I mean that we we recreated, but it, we were oh, that's re from a real shot. We were recreating were... it based on an archival shot. Oh. Yeah, that uh, was just an angle I'd never seen of uh, yeah, yeah. of uh, 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 not the classic angle, which of course is in front of the cloud you see, but off to the side across the bay, and it just is this giant smoke cloud essentially with the rocket coming out like this little thing and i just uh wanted to <laughs> yeah i just felt like we have to i mean a lot of those angles were basically um uh yeah certainly uh you know uh, inspired by if not direct copies of um uh just various archival bits of archival but there's so much great archival footage so you wind up spending a ton of time just watching all that stuff and kind of wanting to do all of it <laughs> This is a question you don't have to answer. Um, the glass at the end, through the glass. You know, it's, he's a really, I mean, I, I don't know that much about Neil Armstrong, but I always heard he was, um, well, he was a very private man and there wasn't much known about him. And, and the way he dealt with his children, the way he dealt with his wife, and then there's that moment at the glass. Can you talk a little bit about how you, you know, how you direct an actor who has to, be withdrawn and still get an emotional performance out of them? Uh, it, it was, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I guess other than the technical stuff, it was definitely the big challenge uh, of the movie was, was uh, you know, just, just I, I guess even before shooting the performance, just trying to kind of build up the character even on the page. And it was something that Ryan was 
really deeply involved in as well. As soon as he kind of, as soon as we'd finished La La Land and started working on this, I think we both knew right away, okay, this is what the challenge is going to be. That this, that this, if, if we're going to be honest about who Neil was, uh, he was very taciturn. He was very removed. He was very remote at times. He was the kind of person that people could have, you know, some people who spent tons of time with him in real life still felt like they didn't know. Um, and so, uh, but of course we want to feel as an audience that we can at least get glimmers of what's motivating him or what the emotions are underneath them. Um, so it became just this, this balance of, you know, first on the script, uh, of just kind of figuring out, um, you know, uh, w when we were going to see cracks in that facade, you know, and, 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 uh, uh, and what would kind of motivate Neil, what, what we would believe for Neil to sort of give us those cracks in the facade that give us peaks. And then, um, and then I think it's just you know ultimately it, it sort of the the burden fell on Ryan's shoulders a lot on set to kind of uh, uh, to modulate and and uh, and so we wound up basically doing lots of options you know so I mean a scene like that I think uh, we played a lot of different ways I mean most scenes in the movie I'd say um, uh, uh, especially those sort of more subtle intimate interpersonal scenes you know that don't involve giant space, you know, explosions, uh, 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 we would do kind of, uh, every which way we would, uh, you know, do them exactly the script, but then we would do more improvised versions of them. And we would, um, uh, and Ryan, it was also interesting, you know, like working with, and I'm, I'm sure you find this well, I mean, every actor has a different way of working. Ryan is very much someone who likes to look at playback and likes to kind of actually sort of have that kind of involvement. And then, you know, Claire Foy, for instance, who was, you know, playing a lot of scenes, opposite uh is the op is the the opposite you know wants to be nowhere near the playback and wants to pretend that doesn't even exist and just you know doesn't like to look at herself doesn't want to overthink things too much um whereas ryan really likes to think about it and and get into the real nitty-gritty precision of you know uh, should i try this should i try that um and uh so it just wound up being uh yeah a lot of takes and a lot of uh uh experimenting a lot and and even just little increments a little more here, a little more there, a smile here, no smile there, you know, a little opening of the eyes, a little bit less. He knew the camera was very close, obviously, a lot of the time, so that, um, and that was also part of why we shot close, because we knew we were going to be relying on small, little micro gestures and micro things, um, and we wanted to pick them up. Yeah. So, yeah. Super 16 or 16? Uh, super, yeah. sorry, yeah. Um, the overview effect, you know what that is? Cosmic consciousness. So I made no. I did this documentary uh, called One Strange Rock this yes. year, which was all these astronauts talking about it. But basically, they all, you know, if they go to space for eight days or 665 days, they all have this sudden realization that they see the world as one. Yeah. And you gave that moment to Neil when he's in the room for his job interview. He's sort of hinting at mm -hmm. it. And is that a real moment or is that kind of stealing some of that idea and giving it to the character to sort of, you know, impress, you know, be an, be an impressive job interview. Do you know if, if he actually was thinking that way or, or, or what? So it's uh, actually, it's funny. It's a little bit of both because, uh, so for instance, the dialogue in that interview is um, a little bit of a melding of uh, basically various interviews with Neil. A lot of it is his own words, but some of the, some of the language is from his test pilot days from his, you know, uh, just from kind of what he's describing there, getting not the full overview of the earth, but that kind of glimmer of the of, of yeah. kind of past the atmosphere. 
uh, and then and then uh, a chunk of it is from uh, uh, is from later in his life is basically from uh, uh, post uh, post Apollo missions um, and uh, um, but I think we also knew like we, we also felt like in a way that this was going to be um, you know as as uh, taciturn a character as he is through the whole movie uh it felt like in terms of an arc he was uh, going to get even more taciturn as the movie went on that he was going to get even more essentially essentially spiritually and mentally closer to the moon as the movie goes on and further away from earth um and uh and so it felt like uh, uh the, you know there that there there is this ability that he had his whole life and you see it in interviews all over his life to just um, for someone who spoke very little to be kind of remarkably poetic at surprising moments. Um, uh, you know, often interviewers wouldn't know if they'd get the one word answer from him, you know, or, or his sort of indirect way of telling them to shut up, yeah. or if he would suddenly just go on this kind of poetic rumination about, um, you know, about spaceflight or about perspective or about, you know, uh, uh, the perspective it gives you. Um, and is there no, um, there's no story on where the famous line the step line comes from or if there, it was well so uh there's theories um neil himself and and i i this is actually sort of the theory i buy um uh said he never thought about it beforehand he didn't write it down it didn't you know uh, uh didn't scribble it out on a piece of paper or test different sort of line we had drafts of the script where it was like testing because <laughs> you kind of want to do that but um no, but it's a nice but, moment with the child asking yeah you know. this, and and that that kind of was as close as we decided to get in terms of seeding that um because the thing i do buy about neil and what he said when people asked him how'd you come up with that line is that until the moment he landed that is all he was focused on that there was no part of his brain that even allowed himself to think past that because just landing was going to be this great success and you know he figured well uh if the biggest problem i have is figuring out what to say as i step out you know we'll be okay um and uh and then but then there's a later interview that i love where he it kind of it tells you a lot about neil's mind he was kind of saying uh you know they were pressing him well okay well, after you land like you know how do those words come to you and he sort of was shrugged, shrugged and went well i don't i mean I was coming out and I was taking this small step off the ladder and I don't know what to say about taking a small step. And so I <laughs> said small step and then I, you know, and it's just a then this and uh, it's sort of typical Neil understatement, but also I think, uh, you know, speaks a lot about him that again, he was able to turn on the poet in him in these weird <laughs> sort of singular yes. moments when I think I would just be, you know, there's a great like, uh, is it an Onion article or something where it's just like the entire thing is just a, uh, holy fucking shit, people are walking on the moon. And it's like, and then it's just like, Neil Armstrong was quoted as saying, one small step, fuck this, I'm walking on the fucking moon. Oh my God, I can, I, can you fucking believe it? <laughs> it's just great. And is the bracelet true? Uh, the bracelet is, uh, uh, I think it's true. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, I'd say it's a conjecture. Basically, it's, it's uh, what we know for sure is that he brought personal items in his PPK. He went off to this crater alone for 10 minutes uh, and didn't speak, wasn't on comms. Um, and, uh, and so out of that, his uh, sister, who we spent some time with, uh, who was very close to him, um, June, uh, she, uh, she sort of hypothesizes that, you know, or sort of uh, optimistically, she would say, hypothesizes that he, um, that he left something, I don't know if it's a bracelet, but he left, left some memento of Karen's, of his daughter's uh, on the moon. But, uh, but he, typical Neil fashion, never confirmed or denied it. Um, and, you know, I, 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 in some ways, I don't, I don't think we'll ever know for sure until, we, you know, until someone goes back there. 
How'd you find the Gil, how'd you find the Gil Scott Heron song? Oh, that was, uh, uh, well, actually, I forget when, I, I think it was something that Ryan actually stumbled on when we were all researching. Um, I had found, I just found a lot of interesting, initially I didn't have that sequence have a song at all, it was more of a speech, and I, I just found these really interesting, uh, uh, well, just interesting stuff about protests uh, against the space program at that time, and especially a lot of it really interesting just op-eds, various newspapers around the country, I mean, there were... Uh, 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 and, and kind of all sorts of different newspapers. I mean, things, you know, as mainstream as, as, as the Chicago Tribune and then uh, much more sort of alt kind of weeklies and things that uh, uh, were essentially making the same points that the song makes. But as soon as I heard the song, um, it felt like that was a much better way to communicate yeah. that. Cool. Do we have any questions? Yeah. Um, it was certainly something I was very, uh, you know, um, I mean, conscious of because, uh, well, I guess also partly because this was the first time I had done a movie uh, that wasn't, you know, a story I'd come up with or, and wasn't in some way based, I'd say, in part on my own experiences. This was obviously very far removed from my own experiences down to literally the period of time that I was trying to recreate. Um, it might also be why my first recourse from the get-go, maybe to compensate, was just to wade as deeply as I could into the documentary archival footage that exists. Um, and so that started with NASA, you know, uh, material of which there's a ton, um, uh, and not just filmed material, but also Life magazine photography, where you really get these wonderful snapshots of the houses and and the families. And I just found all those images so evocative. I spent a lot of time with the families themselves, and you know, they had home photos and Super 8 home movies and all that kind of stuff. So I just wound up trying to sift through as much of that as possible. Um, but then I think broadening broadening out from NASA, just trying to uh, get a feel for um, not just the period, I guess, but also specifically Houston in that time, because it, it was also something we realized pretty early on was that there was a little bit of a bubble uh, effect to that community at that time, and that and that one of the interesting things, and you know, sort of speaks to the the, the Gil Scott Heron song as well, is is as the country as a whole was changing dramatically from '61 to '69. Um, in many ways, this little neighborhood and this little community of Houston wasn't um, this little kind of world that the astronauts had created for themselves um, was changing much more incrementally. Um, so to always know that we were kind of, in a way, going to be, if we were telling a story about 66, you know, in that part of Houston, it was actually probably going to feel a little more like 59 or 58 or something. You know, that was always going to be a little bit uh, before what it would feel like in New York or L.A. Um, and... Um, and uh, and yeah, just trying to get those details again. Looking at a lot of a lot of documentary footage that uh, you know. Uh, once I was done with the NASA stuff, looking at um, just anything by Weissman from that era, or the Maisels again, or, or uh, the Robert Drew documentaries, things like that, to just sort of get a feeling for it as much as I could, because I didn't myself live through it. He was born in the '90s, or close to '80s. '80s. <laughs> I know. I'm just teasing. Please. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, it was, you know, I guess as always, at least in my case, it was definitely a, f a fair bit longer uh, in the first cuts. But um, uh, but then it sort of zigzagged. I mean, I remember, you know, kind of, uh, we, you know, we shaved it down a lot and then realized we needed to restore certain things. And it kind of, so it sort of hemmed and hawed as, as, we, as we edited it. Uh, and we did, uh, we did preview it, which is, uh, which is uh, my idea of Chinese torture. And I just... Uh, I, I can't stomach it as a filmmaker, but where, uh, where did you test it? Um, 
well, it was always in L.A. So Sherman Oaks, yeah. I think, and uh, uh, it was two different theaters, Sherman Oaks, how'd and that, then how'd it go? And then it went okay. I mean, it was. Uh, I'm I, the world's I, worst I, tester in the world. I so. had to do it on La La Land too, and I just—it's yeah, literally. It's a nightmare. And after La La Land, I swore I would never do it again, and then somehow I got roped in, roped into doing it again. Do you, well, do, well, let's talk do about you do that. it a lot? Let's talk about it a lot. It's awful. Anyway, <laughs> I, 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 uh, um, but what I am a big fan of, I'm, so I'm not, as you can tell, I'm not a big fan of testing, but I'm, a, I'm definitely a big fan of, of uh, putting a movie up on its feet, so to speak, and, and screening it. So definitely, uh, and actually more so in this movie than any movie I've done, we would do kind of semi-regular screenings, but, you know, sm smaller, intimate kind of groups at the edit or near the edit room, but definitely trying to just see, um, you know, figure out the pacing, the rhythm. Also, you know, it's a dense narrative. So figuring out where we needed to help the audience information wise and what people could come in knowing and not knowing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, 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 yes, very much. I mean, that, that, that was, you know, certainly one of the, the big kind of things in post of just, uh, like I was saying, just trying to modulate it. Um, uh, uh, you know, there was also, um, you know, also those tough, you know, certain tough things where you'd kind of shave the movie down to just the plot in a way, you know, you'd, you'd sort of go, we definitely did that cut where you, you know, which probably is a you know, cut that everyone does at some point where you go, okay, what is, what's, what happens to the movie? Let's just see what happens to the movie if we literally cut out everything that, you know, only keep the stuff that you literally wouldn't understand anything without, you know, and let's just look at the, the bare skeleton. And sometimes you learn positive things from that. Um, certainly one thing that really was affected badly by that was, uh, was uh was neil's character because he sort of he needs a little bit of that extra breathing room for you to uh, uh as you say for you to to feel those kind of slight changes in him because everything is going to be subtler with him than it is with louder characters even other characters in the movie um um so uh so yeah that was uh, and, uh, yeah i mean it, it was it was a uh, trial and error very much so i i don't know if i uh i i i the, the scene I'm thinking of, uh, I don't, I don't wish it was in the movie. I think it was the right thing to cut it. I just wish that I'd been smart enough to realize it wouldn't be in the movie and not uh, spend a lot of time and money shooting it. But, uh, but, uh, but Neil and Janet's house shortly after they moved to Houston uh, burned down in a freak house fire that almost killed them. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so the entire house burned down uh, uh, to a pile of rubble and they, and they had to rebuild. So we shot this giant house fire and, um, and, uh, and I, and it dictated everything actually. It dictated, you know, not just finding a house to be Neil and Janet's house in the movie because we knew we had to burn it down completely. So we built a house from scratch in order to burn it down completely. Um, and, uh, and, um, yeah, and that's not in the movie. So I think, uh, I think Universal <laughs> still has some bones to pick with me on that, on that, on that one. Tom, they'll put it in the trailer. Uh. <laughs> He asked about was he think was Damien thinking about the right stuff while conceiving in the movie Kaufman film? Uh, yeah, I mean for sure. I mean I, I uh, so I, I you know I, that was a you know a movie that I'd seen a few times uh, you know back when I wasn't uh, engaged with the subject matter and then sort of early on made sure to rewatch and and I think with that movie and with I guess in some ways I would say every movie explicitly dealing with space travel i made a point of of watching them uh early on and then avoiding them at all costs um uh just uh just uh 
because it would screw me up because it would, you know, uh, 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 sort of get into my head, especially good ones like the right stuff. You know, th those are the ones that uh, you almost want to avoid the most. 2001, something like that, you know, made sure to watch early on. Um, and uh, so I could refresh myself from exactly what their approach was. Um, and then, uh, and then, you know, at, especially as we were getting closer to shooting, um, uh, you know, you, you want to almost, or in my case, create a little bit of a bubble around myself, uh, in terms of the sort of things that I feel okay to kind of pilfer from. Um, and, uh, and so that became largely on the one hand, the, you know, the sort of archival footage, uh, that I was talking about, sort of authentic NASA footage of the time. And then non-space movies, a whole sort of host of, you know, movies that I'd screen for the, the crew when we were prepping, um, uh, you know, everything from, uh, uh, well, certainly movies that sort of took place during the period. But I think a lot of sort of family, a lot of movies that I felt could maybe speak to uh, the family aspect. We looked at stuff by Bergman and, uh, you know, stuff like uh, Ordinary People and uh, films like that. And, um, and then I guess when it came to trying to figure out how to shoot uh, uh, this, the, the, the set pieces, so to speak, the space sequences, um, really looking at, uh, 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 I always like the idea of trying to, if you're trying to shoot something about a certain subject matter, to try to shoot it as though you're doing it about a different subject matter. So we tried to, you know, we watched a lot of uh, war films and, you know, things like Das Boot and tank films, things like that, uh, submarine films. Uh, we, uh, we screened uh, The Wrestler. Uh, uh, I, and, uh, you know, especially kind of talking about brute physicality in, in cinema and how to kind of communicate that through these launches, um, uh, uh, you know, Raging Bull, you know, th 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 things like that. So stuff that subject matter wise is far removed, but, um, but where it felt like I could, uh, concretely grab at something, whether it was the shooting or the editing or the music or whatever that would, uh, you know, uh, that would inspire us. Well, thank you, Damien. Congratulations. Thanks Beautiful so film. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from director Damien Chazelle, check out episodes 63 to 65, which feature Mr. Chazelle discussing his DGA award-winning film La La Land, alongside other nominees such as Barry Jenkins and Denis Villeneuve at our Meet the Nominees 2017 Feature Film Symposium. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.